So it's just you and me today, Fotis, as Josh has a child emergency, which seems to be apparently you cannot leave small children alone by themselves, but also they're probably not really interesting guests to have on a podcast. But hello, Josh. Uh, thank you for doubling our listener numbers this week. And I uh, hope you have a good time with your small people. So we've decided to talk today about what we're reading at the moment um, because I think good writing requires lots of reading. And I don't know about you, Fotis, but I'm a very diverse reader. There's not much I won't read. Um, I like all sorts of genres, all sorts of styles. Um, I still think about uh, a holiday I took in Palermo in 2007 and in our bed and breakfast room, in our bedroom, there was a bookshelf of about five books and they were all in different genres. They're very carefully chosen. There was one crime, one historical novel and so on and so on. There was a book there called I Love Capri. And it was, it was, in many ways, it was a terrible book, but in also many ways, it was a wonderful book. It was about some fluffy woman who sold hand, uh, headscarves and things like that. And she went on holiday to Capri and met a man and all this kind of thing. It was wonderful. It provided conversation at dinner every night. I would read a bit during the day and then I would relay uh, the updates to the plot in the evening. And whatever whatever people might say about what's called chiclet, which I think is really derogatory, actually. This was a really well-plotted book. It had plenty of pace and plenty to talk about. So I will read anything. Uh, but at this present moment, in um, a complete about turn from I Love Capri, uh, I'm reading some Virginia Woolf, which is quite the challenge, as anybody who's read Virginia Woolf will know. Uh, it's not a novel. It's a collection of uh, essays called The Second Common Reader. And it's not... Um, yeah, I have to admit, one of the reasons why I bought it, I'm a sucker for secondhand books. And this was printed in 1941. And um, it's on very thin paper because they didn't have much paper during the war they had to ration it was rationed in in book publications but all of these these essays are about books and one of the things i've seen in it that i like the most is an essay at the end called how should one read a book and i can't remember if i said this is in the second common reader how should one read a book and it closes with the loveliest paragraph i think i've ever read I've sometimes dreamt, at least, that when the day of judgment dawns and the great conquerors and lawyers and statesmen come to receive their rewards, their crowns, their laurels, their names carved indelibly upon imperishable marble, the Almighty will turn to Peter and will say, not without a certain envy when he sees us coming with our books under our arms, look, these need no reward. We have nothing to give them here. They have loved reading. Isn't that brilliant? Is I, uh, I just when you have a talent for writing, yeah. <laughs> what a difference it makes, even in a non-fiction book. Yeah. Um, 
So is Virginia your go-to uh, trait when you're reading? Oh, no. She is when I feel I need to exercise a muscle. She's if I want to get stuck into something, if I want something I can really think about, I'll read Virginia Woolf. Um, she's very thought-provoking. She, She's somebody I quite often read at night just before I go to bed, and she's somebody I would probably read two or three pages at most a night, as opposed to chewing up maybe 10 or 11 pages of some other book before I get tired. Um yeah, she's. I've got quite a few of her books, and I do appreciate her writing. But it is, it is also work because she, she prompts a lot of thought, uh, and I like that. Um, but equally, I like things. This book I've just finished is Nordic Tales, uh, which is a collection of folk tales, fairy stories, if you like, from uh, the Nordic countries, uh, and that's been great fun. Um, completely different. Those are stories for children. Is it, is, it, is it for children or...? Well, is it? I don't know. I mean, we, we always think of fairy tales as being for children, but... Yeah, maybe that's a cliche in my mind. Yeah, uh... but I don't think they are. I mean, bad things happen to a lot of people in stories, <laughs> although not in these. I have to say, there's a lot of happy endings here. Things tend to turn out well uh in those particular stories i think the brothers grim tend to kill people off a lot more um which are the ones that are most familiar in this country uh but the nordic countries tend to be much more satisfied with life and people tend to do all right out of it which is nice to read so although they do have great things happening and magical people i'm not sure they're for children I think adults can appreciate these things. Um, I, I remember you were reading something about uh, Japanese, uh, not necessarily folk folk tales. I think it was mostly the. Yes. Um, did, did you notice differences in the writing in the way uh, you were reading the books? Very much so. That was the most bizarre collection of stories I've ever read in my life, uh, because the the structure of it was so different to what we're used to um in our western tradition uh, so we would tend to have um what joseph campbell identified as the um call to adventure um the hero's journey um so we've got a clear character who must overcome some obstacles to gain a goal essentially the japanese stories uh, were, were wonderful in that they really didn't follow any kind of structure that i was familiar with at all um And um, a lot of the time, a great misfortune befell people, but all those around that person laughed and thought it was hilarious, which, um, again, was very different, very different attitude to everything. Um, these Nordic tales are much more aligned with what we would be familiar with um, in the UK. Um, but, yeah, good to... I, I like I like reading folk tales. Um Was there a favorite one from the from the book? I I think so. Um, there was one I recognized from a Ladybird book when I was a child, which I still have. Uh, which was um, well, the book that I had was Stone Soup, and in this book, it's Nail Soup. So it's basically a man, a wandering man, a tinker, um, seeking shelter for the night, and he manages to persuade a tight-fisted old woman to create 
a delicious soup for his dinner by telling her that it only takes the nail that he has in his pocket. So she puts a pot of water on to boil with the nail inside. And he said, there you go. That's, uh, that's all you need. However, the king does tend to put in some carrots. Oh, well, if the king eats that, then I can find a few carrots. And he does like it with beef because that flavors it beautifully. But we don't have any beef, so we'll make do as we are. Oh, no, hang on. I think I have some beef. So she puts that in. So, well, he does like some pearl barley. He does like some potatoes. But we don't have any of that. So it doesn't matter. And so on and so on until there's this amazing soup. And, of course, he gets to stay the night and fill his stomach on this food. Uh, and she's like, wow, fancy that. You've made that amazing soup just from a nail. <laughs> I love that story. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. It, it, it amazes me to think, um, to see in action how people might, you know, imaginative writing, as it were, you know, not, not mm -hmm. something not... Uh, something I don't do, something I'm not used to reading a lot. And when you see that in action, like in tales, mm. I don't know, I'm I just trying to imagine how can you do that. I mean, where, I always think of it as a handbrake, whether it's on or off. Uh, and, uh, you know, I would love to let, let myself, you know, <laughs> just try it. Although I'm yeah. wondering, I'm, I'm worried what my mind will come up with if I'm not controlling it. <laughs> yeah, no, I know what you mean. It takes it takes quite a bold step, I think, to start talking about magical doorways and um, bewitched princes and trolls who keep princesses captive and things like that. Um, there's something, yeah, I understand that you might hold back from that because how can such a thing be serious? But I think... It's purely a medium, isn't it, for delivering a story or a message or a, examining a theme or something like that. It's interesting, though, how you um, the, your your the range of, of reading that you do. I I, I don't do that. I think I, I'm mostly maybe that's why I don't read as much. Maybe because I focus myself on the same things a lot. Maybe I get tired of the. Um, of the material I'm going to read and I don't delve as much as I should into mm. books. Perhaps I need to open up my horizon a little bit. Um, no, I don't read. I do like Japanese literature, because, uh, which you've read, the folk, uh, the folk tales, mostly through uh, Murakami, mm. which is not traditional Japanese writer, I think. They, they say he's more westernized kind of author. Mm. But then I, I did discover other authors like Yoko Gawa, um, and uh, oh, I will I will get the names wrong if I say if I, if I try to say anything else without actually looking at the name. So I'm not gonna do it. Um, so I, I always thought Japanese literature has some sort of particular writing. That's why I asked about mm -hmm. the difference with the Nordic oh, ones. I see. Yeah. I always notice with Japanese language, it's it's a little bit. Um, I I I I say it's very gentle. Usually, they have. Because it's a little bit in contrast with what the, the way they, they behave themselves. Like you think of them like very uh, reserved people, and then you read the writing, and they, they have all these uh, ideas, thoughts, uh, and uh, philosophical you know concerns about life, uh, human existence, love, 
relationships. Uh, a lot of the Japanese books I read, actually, there is someone cheating on someone. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and a lot of the times I see uh, mentions of suicide. Mm. Nevertheless, the language that is used is always gentle. Uh, I don't think they go for a very uh, rough language, like to shock you in a way. Mm. They do try to be very kind with your uh, senses when, when you read. Uh, they try to be very sensual sometimes as well with, with the language. And um, I, I found this very particular to the Japanese authors I've read. It's always like a, a very soft exploration of any topic when you read uh, their books. Um, so uh, at the moment I'm reading um, Diana Evans. I started it actually last night. Uh, the book is called Ordinary People. It has won a number of awards, uh, and not just this book of hers. She, apparently, I googled her today a little bit, and she's won uh, uh, all of her three books. Um, won, uh, you know, uh, I think now she's in the double digits, certainly double digits of awards. Um, uh, from the from reading ordinary people, I understand why. <laughs> Good. In, in, yes, in the first eighteen pages, I think. She's doing that kind of thing that I like a lot in, in, you know, depending on the mood as well, if you're looking for that to read, it's, they know how to paint a picture of a couple and how to go into the intimate moments of, you know, uh, being in touch with their feelings. They make you feel the frustration of the, uh, you know, of the characters, mm-hmm. uh, as it were. Uh, she's describing in the first few pages the, the, um, detrimental aspect of a long-term relationship when there is a chi- child on the way. This is not uh, about Josh or anything. <laughs> <But> <laughs> Too late, the, Josh. Too late. <laughs> I, I, have, I have to read more to understand why they, they are, um, you know. Uh, but it talks about the wear and tear, essentially, that the relationship can mm. have um, throughout the years uh, and the, the, the beginning of, uh, of a relationship with excitement and then, you know, how things slow down as you go uh, as the three as, uh, through the years and she's done that like in, in, in you know six or seven pages and i can feel through the language that she uses how you know accurate this may be not not from my personal experience but certainly from what i've seen around me mm-hmm. and it's 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 amazing to see something represented in a way in a book and uh, i think I, I like that when i read about that. that's what i was thinking about when i was reading it um, so I'm really excited to actually read the rest of it, and I can. Uh, it, it has a lot of um, themes. Um, it's set in London to an exhilarating soundtrack. Ordinary people is an intimate study of identity and parenthood, sex and grief, friendship and aging, and the fragile architecture of love. Wow! <laughs> it sounds. <laughs> um, it sounds great. That sounds it epic. Sounds great. And, and, uh, there are, uh, it starts with um, uh, the victory, Obama's victory in politics, I mm-hmm. think in 2000, his first one, it doesn't really say. Um, and it talks about like the joy that it brought to uh, people of color uh, across the pond in in UK, essentially, not, not in the United States, because it's set in London. Uh, and so th- there is some uh, other themes in there, which is, fascinating for someone to be able to I think these are the kind of books that really really get me um, 
but she's, she's doing that thing where it's it's indeed funny. Uh, she paints some pictures of dancing, and there's so much imagination in there in terms of how a house may look. Uh, little details that I've never been able to exploit myself. Uh, and um, one of the things I did this morning was to look up, uh, and she has um, a master's from University of East Anglia. Mm -hmm. in creative writing and uh, I've said that this is a concern of mine and I've mentioned in the writing groups I don't know if you think there is what is the advantage there for people that have gone through that process of um, a degree or professional workshops or anything like that because mm -hmm. I've not done it and I think I feel I mean in a disadvantage there yeah it's a tricky one isn't it because It'd be great to do something like that if you had the chance, but who has the time and the money these days to do something like that? But, yeah, I think, I don't know, I think anybody could, anybody could write, anybody can tell a story. I think what those kind of things can do can be to polish your writing, help you tell the story well, help you structure it well. Uh, and we know from... Codename Ian at his um, uh, academy. Uh, he's learning an awful lot about story arcs and character journeys and things like that, um, which might sound prescriptive, but I think he's he, well. He's obviously found it extremely valuable because he's got a lot of professional interest in his work now, which is really exciting. Um, so yeah, I suppose it's things like that. But then, do you have to go on a course to? learn that maybe not maybe because you read a lot and you don't just read a book and think oh that was a great story move on to the next as you're reading you're thinking oh I see what you've done there I understand how you've made that happen I noticed this I want to try it and Josh of course has said before that he just wants to write like everybody that he reads or every film that he watches so I think you can if you've got a mind to I think you can learn from reading I think you can learn from writing and trying to put that into practice without necessarily going on a master's course, as good as that would be. I think that would be amazing. But then are you just learning a particular way of writing? I don't know. Uh, I agree with everything you said. And I think the, the only thing that I would add is, I, I think the way you described, uh, you know, becoming part of a, you know, of a workshop or something, I think maybe it makes it, it filters it, it filters it through what it should look a little bit more professionally, like mm -hmm. when you, before you go to publication or something, mm -hmm. uh, which is what you said. And I think that's, that's my, that's my, my thought that you can write, I think very well up to a point without going to these, these places. But you, of course, I think, I think through the, the last six or seven years where I've been reading and I decided to write, I've been going through an education, irrespectively mm -hmm. of whether it's a, an official or, or not, because it's the amount of time that you you and I will spend on thinking about this process. You know, if you don't really pay attention to all these little details we've been discussing over over you know the last thirty podcasts or so and all these writing groups we had, I think this counts as an education. I just mm -hmm. think. What I what I think this is this this places do for you is that yeah that 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 you you're part of a community and everyone will add their own uh, um, advice to it and it will essentially conform to the types and standards of what a 
professional book should look like. I think that that's that's something um, I'm looking into in terms of how you can you can get that. It's it's a very expensive business mm. to be honest. Mm. Uh, when you're looking for editors or agents, you know, formalize your book or look at uh, someone to look at your work, everything is very very expensive. Uh, I'm not judging or or saying you know uh, I don't know what what dictates the prices, but this is a concern uh, I have. Uh, mm. And uh, this all came from, from reading that book and thinking, because I'm writing at the moment and trying to improve my writing, I'm thinking, what can I do to improve it? So, mm -hmm. so this is a vicious circle where um, uh, the confidence comes and goes. And uh, that's what this book did for me. And I have another book, which is uh, the more intellectual stuff, as you said, which is The Duty of Genius, uh, the biography of Ludwig Wittgenstein. I don't mm. allude to be a genius. <laughs> um, far from it, I don't understand what he's trying to say about language and the philosophy of language. I absolutely not. He talks about language as a game, doesn't he? He talks about games, if yes. I remember rightly. Yes. I, I can't know if what you're referring to language as a game in the if it's his first part or his second part of his because I can't remember. the early Wittgenstein was one thesis and the late Wittgenstein uh, was a different uh, kind of thesis on, on the philosophy of language. He started from logic. I think he his mentor was a mathematician, Bernard mm -hmm. Russell. And so his, his work starts from a mathematical standpoint and how to be logical. Uh, and yeah, even even Russell said, you know, reading in the biography in a, in a letter, he says to Wittgenstein, I don't understand your notes. <laughs> you need to explain it to me. So I don't feel very bad for not understanding what... Uh, if Bernard Russell didn't understand it, you're fine, aren't you? <laughs> uh, but it's, it's um, interesting because I, I was reading uh, the reader's comments about this book. And one thing that... I think we can agree is how awful this person might have been. <laughs> it wouldn't be enjoyable being a friend of his. And mm -hmm. um, I guess it's interesting that uh, this insight comes from this book, how, you know, you know, for, for all the intelligence one can have, you know, it doesn't uh, amount to nothing if you're not kind. I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, it's good to be intelligent and, and a genius and everything, but I think you always like more people that are kind and uh, funny and you know able to have a personal relation with them. Which Wittgenstein seems he was much of a so, uh, a person of his own. There is no uh, amazing prose for me to read out for our uh, listeners. Um, uh, this is just the thoughts I'm. I'm mm. extracting from from reading the book. But as you said, I can only read like six or seven pages a night before I give in yeah. <laughs> and not make sense of uh, my, my, my confidence can only take so much <laughs> not understanding <laughs> what I'm reading. Um, I know what you mean though, because sometimes I've read things that are just beautiful and they're so well put and I just think, oh, I could never write like that. But what that I then do is mistake that for, I shouldn't write, I can't write, <laughs> instead of, you can't write like that you're a different person you write in your own way so that's a constant conversation I have in my head with myself um, and I think it's really important because you were talking about having a community that you would have on a, a writing class I think I feel really lucky that we've got our writing group that we can bounce things around with um, 
And I think those are the sorts of people that can give good feedback on writing because they're not just going to say, this is brilliant, I love it, or you spelled that wrong. They're going to say, why does this happen here? Wouldn't she react like that? I thought you said that this was the case. And that's I think that's confidence boosting because somebody is engaging with your writing as an interested reader, as a knowledgeable reader. They're reading it as writers. And I think that does make a difference. I've also sent, I'm thinking about Madeline Stone, so I sent it to the writing group. But I've also sent it to two people who are pure readers. They're not going to look at it from an analytical point of view. They're going to enjoy it, hopefully. And that's good as well, I think. So, yeah, thinking about what kind of reading are you doing? Because the um, Virginia Woolf one, I have to read a bit and then really think about it. It's like, what is that? Uh, it doesn't help that she's talking a lot of the time about things that I haven't haven't read myself. Um so I'm just trying to understand a lot of stuff. The next chapter is on Robinson Crusoe, which I think I have read or I've seen the film. I don't know. <laughs> so that would be interesting to see what she takes from that. Um, Robinson Crusoe, is that uh, with uh, Friday and four? And, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's... Um, my favorite author, uh, my favorite author's Kutsi, uh, he, he has written essays on that, so we could compare in the future. Oh, that um, would be fun. <laughs> yes, that's an idea that can uh, we can see too. Yeah, he definitely, because he's written an entire book, he's written an entire book uh, called Four, which is a play on, uh, on the original story, and huh. uh, the meaning behind it is about authorship, I think. Um, uh, oh, that sounds interesting. It's yeah, I yeah he he adds a character. But I I think he adds a character. I haven't read the original Robinson Crusoe, so he adds Susan Barton, and she's trying. I think the the, the thing is she she ends up in the same island as as Friday and uh, and four, and uh, it's about who tells the story, who writes it, and you know mm. what's the truth and all these things. And yes. again, he he challenges. Um, I think they. Uh, the way Westerners tell stories uh, and whether the, there's an erasure of, of uh, history on, on the behalf of the oppressed, oppressed and oppressed, that's his main theme across mm. a lot of his books. So, uh, But he also written, I think, an essay. I'm, I'm pretty sure I've read something similar. So we can definitely compare and contrast the different kind of um, how great minds think. Let's do that. <laughs> Yeah, that will be an education. <laughs> do you ever, do you ever, when you read something uh, with Virginia, uh, do you ever come across something that you've thought and you see in paper and you think, oh, I, I can write that, or I've, I've thought about it and you know, something. Um, Not necessarily in the same prose, but as a thought, as a, as a. I suppose the fact that she has written a collection of essays around reading. That's quite interesting in itself. She's read all these books and now she's just writing about them. Mm. Um, not as reviews, but as a piece of social history, really. And yeah. She's not reviewing the books. She's looking at the context and where they've come from and what does that say about us as readers. And that's fascinating. So I think it's understanding that actually there's a lot of things you can write about. There's a lot of different ways you can approach a subject. Um there's a lot of different perspectives that you can take, but 
it's all still really interesting, informative, entertaining. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. I mean, after this, I'll probably read something really trashy just to give my brain a little break. I'll have to find something really pulpy and uh, then I can go back to something with a bit more meat on it again. I agree. I, I feel the same. When when something is too uh, challenging, mm. it's always sim- uh, my brain at least as well feels you need a little bit break from that. It works on the back of my mind always. I think uh, a mm. great book with great ideas doesn't leave you really uh, no, definitely totally not. and completely. I think it stays there and that's why we go back to it, uh, yeah. I think, in the end. And because we want to keep uh, itching the scratch, uh, scratching the itch in our brains. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, and, it, it becomes yeah. a part of you, doesn't it? When you read a really good book, it's it's it forms a part of you. Well, we can only hope to do the same for others. <laughs> oh, that's a nice thought. 